welcome to the Theology Pugcast. We're glad to be back in a pub, and we're glad to have you back with us. This is C.R. Wiley, and uh, it, and I am the, uh, the senior pastor of a church in Connecticut, and I've done a bunch of things. I've written books. Uh, one of those books is A Household in the War for the Cosmos. I've been a real estate, real estate agent specializing in investment properties. I've also been a real estate investor, and I've done other things too. But anyway, enough about me. Uh, the Theology Pugcast, each uh, time we get together with you, uh, generally includes the same desperados, the same guys. And, uh, and uh, today I'm joined by my friends, uh, and I let them introduce themselves. But uh, if you've listened to the show before, these folks are familiar. But nevertheless, if uh, you're a first-time listener to the show, it'd be good for you to know who we all are. So, Tom, why don't you start? Um, Tom Price, systematic theologian. Christian ethicist, uh, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and currently at the Fight, Laugh, Feast at University. All right, all right. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about that, because uh, that was uh, kind of a thing that was still in development last time we met, but now it's actually going. It is going, and, and it, we were able to get some, enough people around, uh, along to, to make it run. Um, it, it originally started out, we, it, it was put together very quickly. Um, but the aim of it was really to help people get a, um, a grasp of a lot of the current trends, their history, what's going on with them, and how they're impacting things, and then theological ways of engaging it. And so it, the title is Theology and or of Culture, but really the, the subtitle is the course, the, the, the battle handbook for the baptized. All oh, right. I think that that actually <laughs> should be the lead, it and then the other the should lead. be like, the, yeah. like the, the subtitle. But. The Battle Handbook for the Baptized. <laughs> it's got that nice del- and kind of alliteration going on. With it. Anyway, uh, so that's great. And Glenn, Glenn, it's good to have you back and uh, good to see you in person. I, we were together last time, but we were together virtually. That's right. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And my most recent book just came out on Canon Press called Slaying Leviathan. Mm. And it's selling really well. Yeah, it's on uh, limited government and resistance in the Christian tradition. That's the subtitle. And the timing could not be better. <laughs> you know, it, that's the way things work for the pugs. You know, the pugcast gang. You know, everything kind of comes together marvelously, including the end of the Western world, just in time <laughs> for Glenn's book. So the bright side in this dark moment, the silver lining is Glenn's book. Yep. Well, um, I actually saw a meme today. It was a, a photograph that someone had taken in a store where it said, sale, four ninety nine cookies for, well, it was Christmas-themed, but it was written, cookies for Satan. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the guy who put the meme up said, I hope this is a typo and not the season finale. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, with those cheerful thoughts in mind, I want to actually kind of get into some of the things that are the occasion for, I guess, the, the, you know, the, the relevance of, of your book. Uh, or the salience of it at, the, at this time. So it's, it's my day today, and uh, there's there's something at, at, that's caught my eye that's been cropping up in different places, uh, you know, in, on the internet, and has been for a little while. And it goes by the name the Great Restart. Have you guys heard about this, uh, the Great yeah. Restart? Yeah. We we've we've shared a little bit with each other before the show about it, but I think that what I had uh, observed was not something just, you know, idiosyncratic in nature. But this, uh, this term has been popping up in different places. Now, the Great Reset uh, has to do with a kind of a, a restart for the global economy uh, in the wake of the COVID phenomenon, the COVID lark, the COVID overreaction, the, the COVID panic. All, uh, you know, I think all those things apply. But uh, one of the things that uh, I think has been going on for some time, and we've talked a little bit about it, is there's been a kind of, uh, kind of revival of leftist th- th- thinking, uh, and it's uh, seen in different places. And this is, this is not news at all. But, but what we have with this, this great restart, this, this, this idea that we can kind of get a, get a kind of do-over or take a mulligan on the last century or something like that and just kind of begin again with the economy just... Uh, with uh, from from zero, 
Oh, here we go. Here comes my pretzel. <laughs> and I promise today that I won't smack my lips while I'm talking. <laughs> but enjoy still. But I will enjoy it still. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I noticed in our last episode that I was... I had ordered some some wings, just like you've got That's there, right. Tom. I'm, I'm trying to avoid the, the smack, so the I'm smack. leaning back. Yeah, leaning back. Anyway, so I, I looked around on the Internet, and there, there are actually different places. One of, the, one of the places that has been sort of pushing back against the Great Restart is the Heartland Institute. Great bunch of folks there at the Heartland Institute, and they actually, uh, there was, a, there was a, um, an opinion piece published on... Uh, uh, MSN of all places, uh, pushing back against the Great Restart. But what I have here is from Rebart. Now, I know that some, sometimes when we think of Rebart, that uh, we have this sense that there's a kind of, uh, I don't know, alarmism that uh, kind of is associated with, with Rebart or kind of a uh, sort of an unreflective knee-jerk kind of, kind of character or quality to the things that, that they publish. Um, but I, I think that this particular phenomenon, the Great Restart, is not something that it's, it's really possible to overreact to. It, it's that bad. And, and, and it's not even, you know, a, you know, a cabal. It's, it's, it's kind of out there in the open. And, and, and we have everybody from, you know, the folks that... Uh, well, let me, let, me just go ahead, let me just go ahead and read what I have here from Beepart. And I'll skip around a little bit. Um, and uh, by the time I'm done, I'm sure that you guys will be thoroughly depressed, and uh, so will all the folks in podcast land. Then it'll be our job to try to, you know, sort of instill hope or sort of inspire hope when it comes to this stuff. So let me just start at the beginning. Uh, as you know, things in Breitbart aren't terribly long, so I could read the whole thing probably in, in, a, in a couple minutes. You hear it often these days intoned in the manner of dutiful stepward wives by everyone from UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the Prince of Wales to Canadian blackface artiste Justin Trudeau. <laughs> That's a great opener. Uh, and inevitably, Joe Biden, who has adopted it as his campaign slogan. About the only leader that you won't hear using it is Donald Trump. Well, we're, we're uh, at, you know, post-election, uh, we're, we're, we're looking back on the election. This was actually published before the election. So uh, the article is entitled, uh, Only Donald Trump Can Save Us from the Great Reset. Uh, so it's Great Reset, not Great Restart, just the Great Reset. But anyway, uh, even more cause for alarm, I guess. It should be the Great Recount at this point. But anyway. <laughs> well, I think that's actually going on. I think it is. Yeah, but anyway... Build Mac Better is the code phrase for one of the most terrifying and dangerous globally coordinated assaults on liberty and prosperity in the history of mankind. Mm. Now, that it's, it, it would be difficult to, to, to paint a more, you know, sort of stark and depressing picture than that. But as they, they explain, uh, everything they just said in that little sentence is justified, or whoever wrote this. If the plan succeeds, the world will in, yeah, you will you inhabit will be unrecognizable. Your children will have no prospects, and your life will be barely worth living. Build Back Better means totalitarian rule by a global technocratic elite, a constrictive and immiserating, uh, as constrictive and immiserating as life under fascism or communism. This hideous new world order is the Great Reset. It sounds like a conspiracy theory, but the people behind it are perfectly open about it. You see, and that's the thing. They are, per they are perfectly open about it. Why, uh, why else would they dedicate a special issue of Time magazine to outlining their master plan? One essay entitled, It's 2023, Here's How We Fix the Global Economy, imagines a world where all things started getting better with the ousting of Donald Trump. <laughs> so anyway, so I won't get into that. So how did Biden and the Great Reset pals fix the global economy in this apparently desirable future? Simple. Big government takes over everything. Stop. Big government takes over everything. Not only on a national scale this time, but on a global one. It will be managed by a technocratic elite over whom you will have no democratic control. Jobs and high minimum wages will be guaranteed. Shale gas will be replaced by solar. 
Businesses, in return for massive bailouts from the government, will agree to be run more like communist worker cooperatives. Car lanes on freeways will be replaced by cycle lanes. Companies are no longer driven by profit, but public interest and goals like sustainability. Oh, and you needn't worry about your mortgage payments anymore because private property will be abolished. And yes, they're serious about abolishing ownership. Here's their website boasting about their plans back in 2016. Quote, welcome to the year 2030. Welcome to my city, or should I say, our city. I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or any clothes. It might seem odd to you, but but it makes perfect sense uh, for us in this city. Everything you consider a product has now become a service. We have access to transportation, accommodation, food, and all the things we need for our daily lives. One by one, all these things became free, so it ended up not making sense for us to own much. What's unusual, that's, that's the quote, by the way, what's unusual about this global communist takeover plan is that it originates not from some meeting of hair shirt sociology students at Berkeley. <laughs> they, by the way, they stopped wearing hair shirts a long time ago. <laughs> but in the World Economic Forum, which hosts the annual meeting at Davos, where billionaires lecture millionaires and how ordinary people live. <laughs> now, let's stop there for a second. <laughs> now, that's a very uh, you know, disturbing picture uh, to me and I think to a lot of other folks. And I have a number of things that come to mind that I'd like to address, but before I do, what are your reactions, Tom and Glenn? What do you think about this? Is this uh, just, you know, nirvana? Is it you know, heaven on earth? What, what's going on? And uh, should we be concerned about this? Well, the very fact that you've got influential, powerful people who are pushing for this means we automatically have to pay attention. Right, Prince Charles for one. But the thing that, you know, I've cited this before, there's a cartoon out there that has two old guys sitting in a library, and it says, those who don't study history are condemned to repeat it. Those who do study history are condemned to sit by helplessly while others repeat it. (laughs) What we are looking at here with this is exactly the kinds of things that led to uh, 100,000 plus people being killed during the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's just a start. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Society is way too complex an organism to allow itself to be completely restructured around our philosophical presuppositions. Now, let's stop there. I just want to think with you a minute. There are some things that have happened that I think make people think it'll be different this time. What they those... always do. <laughs> no, that's true. I, I agree with that. And I agree mm-hmm. that it won't be any different. Yeah. But the thing that has sort of uh, sort of captured the imagination of people is computing power yeah. and the power to, sor- to sort of deal with the sort of the, the particularities of, of everyone's you know, situations in a way that will hopefully do them justice. Good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we can't even produce software for voting machines that doesn't change people's votes. Right, right. Do you really believe in the technology? Do you really believe that the technology is good enough and bug-proof enough and human error-proof enough to actually make this work out for anybody except those for whom it is designed to work out? Right. Yeah, and yeah. that I mean, and then you see the sinister use of technology, like voting fraud. Um, but the, the sinister use never is what ends up ruining all these programs, right? Um, because the 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 use of technology and the and the restructuring of society, yes, it's benefiting the ones who are doing all the work, but implicit in all of that is the reality that it's benefiting the people who do all the work, which sooner or later is going to cause all the reality questions to come up when you make something look like utopia, but it's only benefiting all those who are... Right. Now, now the way that was handled in something like 1984 is the Ministry of Truth. Yeah. yeah. So, in other words, you you begin to constrict, or you, you constrict the information your ability to express the information. Well, that's what's happening with the, the yeah. big big tech now. Yeah, that's right. It's, yeah. Things get suddenly buggy. It's, it's, it's things that you want to share can't be shared. You know, things that you want to 
you know, sort of dig into a little more you can't find uh, yep. after you saw it the first time. I, you know, this is the sort of thing that because of the nature of the beast, because of the just the scale of big tech, you, you think that, you know, it wouldn't be feasible to to have that kind of control that, you know, yeah. this would, you know, sort of the way the, the Internet was initially sold, the way computing power was initially sold was as, a, as liberatory. Mm. The idea being that, you know, uh, we'll all finally be able to get past those gatekeepers that don't let us get our novel that we've been working on in the basement for five years out, you know, <laughs> into the bookstores. <laughs> now our, our, our genius that the, the agents and the editors overlooked will be finally recognized. And, and what ends up happening? <laughs> well, you end up with a sort of, you know, you know tsunami of novels being written. It, it is November, which is, is in the month where you're supposed to write a novel. Are you, are you guys aware of that? <laughs> Everybody in America is supposed to write a novel this month? Yeah, I know about No Shave November and No Quarter November. <laughs> I haven't heard about New Novel November. <laughs> yeah, it's actually the case. So, and I, uh, I, I, I get see, writing. Yeah, I, well, Lynn is here saying, well, if everybody else is doing it, why can't you get it done, Wiley? <laughs> but that's another subject. But for another month. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We got some more refills. All right. So, so how do we, how do we, how do we sort of, uh, with all of this sort of volume of material that's being, you know, published, exercise control? Well, this is where the guys in Silicon Valley, the big tech guys, have gotten really good, and where our own government uh, has gotten really good in terms of creating algorithms that are able to sort of go out there and mine the data and bring to the surface things that they want to be suppressed. So um, the, we do have the technology now to, at one and the same moment, create a world or have a world in which, in which everybody thinks they have a voice, but at the same time, uh, the tech gurus really are able to, to in a very subtle and uh, diabolical way, shade things or nudge things or move things in directions that they like. Right. You know, the great myth is that the search engines are, are neutral. Right. Um, that, you know, that ratings and things like that are, aren't anything but completely arbitrary or skewed to the direction that the people want them to be. But that's simply not true. Yeah. You know, right. we've, seen, we've seen this documented over and over again. Um, you know, the, the Stalin... It, it, it's it's an abbreviated version of a longer quote, but Stalin said at one point something to the effect of the people who vote decide nothing, the people who count the votes decide everything. Right. And it's effectively the same kind of thing on the internet. You can write anything you want to, but if you don't, if nobody has access to it, nobody knows it's there, nobody reads it, you're you're done. Yeah. And yep. and the tech companies are the ones who count the votes on that. Right. I had this, this very thing happen with mm. the Heartland Institute. So I didn't actually want to use the Breitbart article as the conversation starter for us. I wanted to, to use the Heartland Institute. But mysteriously, I couldn't open the original article, hmm. even though it was linked, you know, and, hmm. and I, I tried to follow it again, tried it from different angles. It just had disappeared or something was going on with it. Now... Maybe I'm reading far too much into that than I should. Probably not. Yeah, <laughs> but the thing is, I'm, it makes you wonder, it makes you question, what's going on with this? Anyway, so the idea is that we, we go from a society in which we have people who own things to a society in which no one owns anything, but everyone supposedly has equal access to services, meaning, I guess, the service of a shirt and pants to wear out of your house on a given day. Because, <laughs> I mean, it, it, that seems like, if, if this isn't overstated in this article, that's actually how, as, as it, you know, it goes that far. I want to have equal access to their Lamborghinis. Yeah, well, that's it. <laughs> well, that's the, that's, that kind of gets at, I think, at the heart of this, is that there's a sense in which the people who were orchestrating this, and you noted this before, I think we began the show, the people who were orchestrating this are very wealthy, very powerful people. Right. And what interest do they genuinely have in the welfare of, you know, their, I guess, you know, fellow citizens, maybe that's not even the best way to put it anymore, 
but, but would, do we have any real confidence that they, they actually are looking out for our interests? Yeah. Well, well, two observations here. First of all, it's only people who are rich that extol the virtues of poverty. Right, right. But then along with that, of course these guys are, well, what, are, what do they do? Where do they get their money? Most of them are somehow involved in the technocracy that they say is going to run the world. Right. So ultimately, this is really all about them getting power over the rest of humanity. And it, and it seems as though there's a kind of pulling up the ladder behind them that's going on here. I can't help but feel like that's what's going on when, um, you know, this, this, you know, I read about the stuff that we've got recorded here, but let me get a little further into this. Um, and what uh, these, these savants are proposing uh, is something that they believe the, the, the coronavirus makes feasible. In other words, the global hmm. pandemic makes feasible. Let me, let me <clears throat> read a, another portion here. This is, a, this is something that actually the guy at... Uh, what is it, the World Economic Forum? Uh, Klaus Schwab, no relation to Charles Schwab, but uh, Klaus Schwab, by the way, I saw a picture of this guy. He does look like Blofeld, you know, from like the James Bond, you know, he, he just, I mean, he's got that sort of, he, he's got this outfit on, you're saying, what science fiction movie are you a, like a, an extra in? And uh, the, he, the, 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 Those movies were not far off, they really, really were. The key question is, does he have a cat? Well, he looked like he could, and, uh, but anyways, uh, this, this guy, the, the founder of the World Economic Forum, he's the founder of the forum. Klaus Schwab has written a book, actually several books, to explain his master plan. And his latest, called COVID-19, The Great Reset, now there's a, a title that says everything you need to have said right there, makes no bones about the fact that the chaos of the coronavirus pandemic presents the perfect opportunity to accelerate the entire world towards a new normal. Yeah. And then uh, we're told here... Uh, and these are quotes from, the, from Schwab. Uh, radical changes, such as the consequences coming uh, that uh, some pundits have referred to before coronavirus, B.C., and after coronavirus, A.C., <laughs> uh, we will continue to be surprised by both the rapidity and the unexpected nature of these changes as they conflate with each other they provoke second, third, fourth, and more order consequences, cascading effects, and unforeseen outcomes. Now, this may seem, this is the author of the Breitbart article, uh, this might all seem pie in the sky, the demented ravings of a German so sinister looking and sounding that he could have been an excellent Blofeld in the Bond movies. <laughs> so I wasn't the only one to think that. Uh, were it not for one major problem, lots of world leaders, Billionaire businessmen and other masters of the universe are totally on board with the project. This includes, if we're very unlucky, future President Joe Biden. Now, we're further along in that than, um, than we thought, at, or they thought at this time. Anyway, because it all sounds like something out of a dystopian novel in the manner of 1984, many people are under the illusion that the Great Reset is a conspiracy theory that can be, they can safely hmm. ignore. But as the commentator at the Lockdown Skeptics put it, it's not a conspiracy when they tell you what they're doing. <laughs> and as I noted, this is something that's come up in, you know, has been, you know, the ravings of these people have been published in Time Magazine and in many other places. Okay, um, let, let, let me sure. jump in yeah. at the moment with, an, with another kind of thought. All of this is wonderful if you're in the first world. Here's the question. My future son-in-law is a pastor in Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone is one of the poorest countries in the world, the, most, the poorest country in Africa. One in eight women die in childbirth. One in five children die by the age of five. So talk to me about how wonderful all of this is going to be. How are we going to extend it to Sierra Leone? How are we going to extend it to Nigeria when they're in the middle of a virtual civil war over religion? How are we going to extend it to all of these other places? I mean, this is a wonderful, wonderful image for, well, a utopian first world society. But most of the world isn't. Well, I think that actually is something that they... Got some more stuff here. All right, Lynn's got something tasty. 
Actually, I think that's one of the reasons, one of the ways that they justify what they're up to. Except it'll never happen. Well, that's true, but has practical application ever prevented these people from trying crazy stuff before? Yep, true. So anyway, here, here's, a, here's something else. Um, the purpose of the Great Reset is the imposition, or the imposition of the health dictatorship aiming at the imposition of uh, li- uh, liberticidal measures, in other words, killing liberty, hidden behind tempting promises of ensuring universal income and canceling individual debt. The price of these concessions from the International Monetary Fund will be the renunciation of private property and adherence to a program of vaccination against COVID-19 and COVID-21 promoted by Bill Gates with the collaboration of the main pharmaceutical groups. Beyond the enormous economic interests that motivate the promoters of the Great Reset, the imposition of the, of the vaccination will be accompanied by a requirement of a health passport yeah. and a digital ID with the consequent uh, contact tracing of the population of the entire world. Those who do not accept these measures will be confined to detention camps or placed under house arrest and all their assets will be confiscated. Now this, this, is, not, this, this is something that's coming from um, an open letter uh, by an archbishop and my printout has has managed to uh, obliterate his name. Vigano. Vigano? Vigano. Vigano. So where is he located? I don't remember off the top of my head. All right. But uh, I don't think that his response is an, is an overreaction. I think that we have a number of things to be alarmed about here. Well, I just saw this so that, you know, this came out earlier today somewhere. A document co-written by CIA Intel Luciano Borio was talking about Biden's COVID-19 task force recommending linking COVID-19 with food security and rent assistance. So this, right. this, this stuff is, isn't isn't out there in, in uh, you know, conspiracy land. This is, this is right, right on the doorstep. One of the things that I think, too, that the technocracy makes possible and, and the advances in information technology in particular makes possible is this kind of linkage. Yeah. I had an interesting experience uh, today, or yesterday, actually. So anyway, I was, I was on the road, and, uh, you know, in order to fly, you have to agree, at least if you're from Connecticut, that when you come, come return home, that uh, you will self-quarantine for 14 days or get a COVID test. So I, I got a test. I thought, I love my house, but just not that much. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I was able to make arrangements to have this test, and they did a virtual screening online with me last night. And as I'm interacting with the woman who's screening me, and I can see her and she can see me, it's a visual like right out of science fiction movies in the in the sixties and seventies, I'm, I'm interacting with her. She asked me if if, if I if I smoke, and I said no. And then she said, "Really?" And I thought, "How would she even? You know, is it my teeth are yellow or something?" I, I don't know. Then I realized that occasionally I do smoke a pipe, and I do buy tobacco for my pipe online. Now. This is where your mind goes at a moment like this. Yeah. Does she have some kind of access <laughs> right. so to my purchases? <laughs> yeah. You know, particularly as they relate to my health. Yeah. You know, when, when we get into this world of collective sort of responsibility, everybody responsible for everybody else, yeah. that means there is nothing in yeah. your life, Tom, that's, that's not my business. That's right. Everything's po- everything's everything personal is political. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it, it wasn't merely, uh, you know. It, you know, it, it, you go from merely expressing concern about your neighbor's yeah. well-being to what are you costing me well, because of your behavior? Well, and that's kind of the, the thing that I think is, behind, is sort of the underlying sort of buy-in or reason why people buy into this sort of soft totalitarian healthcare, te- healthcare technocracy that yeah. we've seen emerging yeah. right before our eyes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, healthcare is an easy way to get people on board to that control. Yeah, that, because it, all of a sudden it affects it, it, everyone in a different way. Right. Um, and and so yeah, you can expand the range of control. I mean, you see this in UK. I mean, I've I've heard recently read articles about how the way they're with the COVID, they're actually going to censor, not censor. Sorry, they're actually have people 
watching and reporting to see if certain people get together or if they're having re relations yeah. at all that are their personal life. Yeah, I mean, yeah. sexual relations and everything else. They're, they're, they, if COVID, they want people to be a part. They want to be able to manage that and control that. I mean, so the libertines have now become the totalitarians. Yeah, that was well. That's we, we've been saying. There's a, there was a flip side on the on the on the spiritual and intellectual level with right. with that. Right. Um, because yeah, you you it ends up becoming like that. Um, I mean, Glenn could probably talk to that with Leviathan a lot. I mean, the way in which that 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 you know let people run wild in terms of their freedom without any limit that creates exact set of conditions to have to. To put it under under the under the control, and if you look at the context where the book Leviathan was written, yeah, it was written after the Restoration in England, which was a period that was very libertine, mm. and that was exactly the context in which he was advocating for a Leviathan government, a government that reached into every area of life that that incorporated every individual in the kingdom into itself and so on right. well and you and you see that that exact thing happening on you know and again i'm just talking about currents right now for example let's talk about the the kind of the, the riots um the the, right. the left the antifa and the like when you find out who's been funding it's the, some of the most wealthy in, the, in world. the world and so, so what is that direct connection between, well, what you have is it's easy. If you can create a war between kind of the d down in where everyone has property versus those that are basically have university degrees, but they don't have property yet. If you can, if you can create a friction between those two, you're, cr you're basically hammering away at that property world. Right. You're making right. it a place that, that will demand that some kind of government come in and start to control that. And the less they control it, the more it breaks down the, the uh, well, let's think of the guy who defended his property and who's now in in, on trial right. in St. Louis. Right. I mean, look, who, who's the enemy in that, right? right. The, the property owner. Right. And so, and who are the, who are the people that are, that are in the right and going to get off of this? Well, the people who've torn down the fence in the name of some justice. But all this stuff is to prevent people from actually seeing the people who have any money and resources to do anything to help all, everyone down here are the ones who are getting off free right. because they're the ones funding it. Um, so it's a, it's a brilliant demonic strategy, if you right, will. Right. Um, create create a class war where there where the, where there really isn't one, and, and move it from the issue of culture and and you know and the like, and and avoid being criticized for not helping when you actually have the power and the resources to do it in ways um, to help people. But but then there's this other one. You see it with let's see New York City, the the continuous almost uh, totalitarian control with COVID to destroy private businesses right because they, there's another place at which once you can crush that 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 takes away that kind of group of people that class of people that is the the one resistor to total control of right. everything because the the ones that don't have property and and anything to to lose uh, they're already on board with the manipulation right. and being well, even, manipulated even the strand in new yeah. york is yeah. just begging people to come in and buy books to keep to stay afloat yeah so you have this weird phenomenon on the left where the political program of the left undermines the, the health of many of the institutions that have fostered leftism and you yeah. know, sort of historically. One of those being the academy. Yeah. Yeah. So here we have a situation where you know, many institutions of higher learning uh, are in deep trouble. They are, you know, they're in financial straits. Um, the uh, enrollments are down. Um, people are saying, "Why should I bother going to, you know, going back to school if it's all going to just be on Zoom anyway?" I can take a, you know, if, if we're just looking for classes online, yeah. you know, you can get those just about anywhere. Yeah. <clears throat> so why should I bother? So there, there's that. But one of the things that I think, and I brought this up in another podcast, another podcast, is that there is a kind of opportunism that doesn't require a uh, kind of you know insidious plan to take over the world from the start let me give you an example yeah so there were a lot of people who speculated about the origins of the coronavirus did, did it really come from the wet market was it really a bat you know did, yeah, it, yeah. did it come out of the, some lab and and there have been a lot of people 
who are geneticists who have insisted that, no, it just doesn't make sense. We can, we can see that this wasn't engineered. Okay, I can accept that. No biggie. It doesn't matter. Because uh, any kind of uh, significant crisis provides an opportunity for government expansion. Yeah. We've yeah. seen it again and again. We, we think about the Great Depression. Yeah. You know, even in good times, when we think about like the 1960s and the Great Society. Yeah. I mean, you can manufacture a crisis, hmm. even though at that time, you know, America was in a pretty good spot. Yeah. Uh, but what my mind goes to is something that I think that many reformed people miss. And I was sort of given an insight into because of some reading I had done sorry, by, by, you know, by, in some books written by some Jewish authors. And that is, when you look at what happened in Egypt with Joseph, there's a tendency for us as Reformed people to say, wow, look how the Lord <laughs> saved the people. You know, there's God's providence. You know, and and, and I, I believe in all of that. But one of the things that the Jewish writers brought to my attention was that fact that you know, Joseph was just a little too enthusiastic about big government. He just was really on board with Pharaoh to the point where, uh, yeah, he helped to save the Egyptians and people from neighboring nations, uh, you know, and so forth. But did he really need to sell them into slavery to do that? I mean, think about it. You know, every year he's, he's gathering 20%, putting it in storehouses, and then when the time comes for people to be helped, he charges them, right? He doesn't just say, hey, aren't you glad that we thought ahead, look, you know, we planned ahead and we have all these resources? He said, no, no, you got you to gotta, you gotta buy this stuff back. Even though we took it from you, you got to buy it back. And, uh, and at the very end, what happens? All the Egyptians are sold into slavery, not just the Israelites. It's not just that the fact that the Israelites find themselves in a bad spot in the land of Goshen sometime later. When you know Pharaoh, you know doesn't remember who that Joseph guy was. But what we have is that the entire population had been, you know, reduced to servitude in the name of survival. So what you have is a situation in which there is a genuine crisis. Hmm. There was a famine, mm-hmm. there, and that wasn't a government plot. Yeah, uh, and there there was, you know a providential ordering of things. God was involved. Nevertheless, what you have here is a situation in which some folks take advantage. And ne- next thing you know, what happened? What, what happened to my farm? I don't have a farm anymore. Everything belongs to Pharaoh. Pharaoh owns my livestock. Hmm. Pharaoh owns my, my property, my land. Pharaoh owns the crops. I'm just now uh, an, you know, an indentured servant in, an, in, an, in a kingdom that is totally owned by Pharaoh. Totally owned by Pharaoh. We find ourselves in the same spot. We, there, are some, there are some really challenging things that we have to address as you know, a country or, or as a you know, global community or however you want to think about it. But those things can, can, can call forth different responses. You know, one of the things we could have is, is, a, is a political leader who says, you know what? You folks need to get really creative out there. You need to really dig down. I believe in you. Mm-hmm. I believe in the in private initiative, the initiative of, of just everyday citizens to take care of themselves and to look after their neighbors. We don't get that. What we get is hold still, yeah. sit down, leave the driving to us. Yeah. Just shut up when yeah. we say shut up. Yeah. Get up when we say get up. Mm-hmm. Stay home when we stay, say stay home. Close your business when we say close your business. Put a mask on your face when we tell you to put a mask on your face. Just do whatever we say. And what we have is a compliant population that says, sure, sure, I want to live, I want to live, I want to live. Even though it's just by all the statistics that are actually readily available, this is perhaps one of the most absurd overreactions in the history of our country, let alone, well, I could go beyond that, but we've already been dealing in hyperbole. <laughs> it's the comment to, to all of that of elites thinking they can drive the boat better than everyone else is. is um, Did you say you wanted another one as well? Yeah, could I have a. Is it the glow? The fiddlehead. The fiddlehead, of course. And you guys are all separate. So I'm working on my second one. It's. It's the, it's the line that uh, I, was, I was taking a train ride to Scotland 
and a, a Scotsman from a Scots football player got on the train. He, he thought it was English um, for some reason. It's I don't your, know. It's your accent. It's my accent. <laughs> yeah, it had to have been. Uh, but anyway, he, he, he saw me. He goes, you just think you're better than us, don't you? <laughs> and that's sort of the reply to, for, for yeah. me to, to the elites. Uh, you just think you're better than us. But, but when you actually understand the way things are, when you understand reality, when you understand um, things from the rich set of riches that we have as Christians, and you can start to see through the veil of what's going on with this stuff. Um, the sad part is, is many Christians aren't aware of these kind of things, and so therefore it's hard to even know how to digest this stuff when it comes around. Right. Um, the, and and uh, f- maybe from a different angle, let's think of it ter- in terms of propaganda. Um, I, I am seeing probably, and this, this definitely has been exacerbated by technology being able to spread propaganda, but I'm getting little texts and notes from people, uh, friends that I've had for years of, you know, all of a sudden they're all starting to become woke. You know, they're starting to see the light, systemic this. The language they're using, the terms they're using, it's all the same stuff we've known has been the, the, the you know, the, the fraud pseudo uh, science that's been promoted for years um, for political reason and institutions and everything else. But it's like they're waking up to this as if this is kind of new insight that they're now on board with. And how in the world are they getting it? I mean, it's, it's landing on their laps through, these, through, through technology, which is right. deliberately putting it there, through the way it's taken over every institution. I mean, it, it's a force. This is what we were trying to do in those episodes on propaganda. It's a force that the church is going to become very weak to be able to counter if it, if it doesn't know where its strength lies. Right, yeah. right. One of the things that I'd like to respond to is this whole matter of this, the nature uh, of property and why it's significant in, res- in relationship to all this stuff. Why did Marx have property in his sights? Why do these people have property in their sights? Hmm. There is a reason for it. And the reason is, is property pr- is, is, provides the, the base for your exercise of freedom. So I uh, have something I'd like to read from um, the Claremont Review of Books. By the way, this is a uh, great publication. In terms of the publications that are really important to me, I've talked about Touchstone, I've talked about First Things. Claremont Review of Books is right up there with those. Now, uh, this particular review is a review of a book, um, and the title of the review is The Comprehensive Human Right. Now, if you were to to identify the comprehensive human right, what what would you choose? Let's just keep that in the back of your mind. It's a rhetorical question for the moment. But um, the subtitle, or the title, uh, or the, actually the title of the book that's being reviewed uh, is Property and the Pursuit of Happiness, Locke, the Declaration of Independence, Madison, and the Challenge of the Administrative State by Edwin Erler. Erler is spelled E-R-L-E-R. Edwin Erler. And it's by Rowan and Littlefield. Rowan and Littlefield. But anyway, uh, there is a, uh, uh, an excerpt from the book that I just would like to read quickly here. So uh, it says here in the review, as Erler explains, colon, quote, For the framers, the right to property was the comprehensive human right. Rights of conscience, free exercise of religion, freedom of speech, the right to employ one's faculties freely were all the integral parts of the right to property. The right to property was a seamless whole. It was the sum total of human rights. It expressed the metaphysical freedom of the human mind. The metaphysical freedom of the human mind. Now, I read that earlier, and Glenn, you said, sounds right to me. What were you, why, why does that sound right? Well, in, as I was doing my research for Slaying Leviathan, that's exactly the sort of thing that you find when you're looking at what the founders have to say about, um, about human rights, uh, it begins with the idea that you have a right to own yourself. <laughs> you have a right to yourself. You, you are your own property. And that concept leads to all of these other things that go from there. But it is, part, it is seen as part and parcel of this larger issue of property rights. Right. Which, now, means, which means, obviously, 
that this attack on property is attack an attack on, on, on your person. That's right. You know, one, one of the things that people don't get, you know, you, you'll, you'll get a, um, a presidential candidate who shall go unnamed, but who is currently labeled by the media as president-elect, um, who, <laughs> who, who says things like, freedom of religion is nothing more than a code word for bigotry. And what, you know, what, what's being attacked there fundamentally is freedom of conscience. And if you don't have freedom of conscience, none of the other freedoms in the Bill of Rights matter. Because you can't say what you think. You can't say, you, you can't gather and assemble with people of like mind. You cannot redress the government in, you know, for, for the things that you believe are really true. When you understand property rights in the way that the founders did to include your right to yourself and your right to your ideas and so on, you know, this just pushes it one step further back. Right. I, I have an interest, maybe it's too big to open up now, but it may be worth throwing out there because you can already, I can already hear the, the squealing lefties within the evangelical world and the uh, in evangelical academic world, and not only that, some, somewhat of the academic theo- theological world. Um, the, the ones that think sort of social democracy is the, the, the true Christian exemplification of, right. of how we understand things. David Bentley Hart's move towards kind right. of Christian socialism. This, this notion in the book of Acts, right, that they, everyone who had property, right, they don't right. want to talk about that, but they sold everything, had it all in common. Um, and then there's the big argument, oh, well, basically Protestantism opened the big door to become, everyone became nominalists. The individual, the particular, became everything, and self-absorption became the the, the product. Um, how would you, Glenn, because you just wrote a book on it, and then Chris has uh, been contemplating it, uh, how would you answer those kind of people, just for our audience, because I'm sure they hear those things and, and may, may or may not know how to enter into conversation with them? Well, I would start off by saying you need to reread the book of Acts, <laughs> because yeah. what happens, you know, yeah, you have to understand that there are rhetorical devices that are used in acts like hyperbole. Yeah. So when it says they had all things in common, read further. It says no one said that what he owned was his own, but when there was need, they would sell it and bring it, sell their property and bring it in. So what it's saying is that people held the community and the needs of the community is more important than their own property, and they're quite willing to alienate that property in order to meet those needs. When you get to Ananias and Sapphira, the problem is not that they didn't give all the money over, it's that they lied about it. Peter himself says, wasn't it your property? Didn't you own it before? And when you sold it, wasn't it your money? You could do whatever you wanted to with it. You didn't have to give it to the church, and you didn't have to give all of it to the church, but you gave some of it. The problem is you claimed it was all. So all of these things are affirmations of the right to property. Yeah. The commandment, thou shalt not steal, is an affirmation of property rights. Yeah. Right. And, and property provides you with the occasion to actually exercise virtue. Right. So if, if I own nothing, I can't do anything virtuous with what I don't have, right? <laughs> That's right. It's only when I possess something that I can give something away. That's right. So there's a... There is a, a sense in which individualism is uh, inextricably sort of bound up with our way of thinking about the Christian faith because God creates individuals. Now, why, why do I put it that way? Well, man is made in the image of God, not as a collective. It's not as though we're simply referring to sort of whatever community, whenever a community forms, then you have the image of God. No, if you find a, an individual out in the wilderness you know, unattached to any kind of community at all, you're still dealing with someone made in the image of God. So it's, it's, it doesn't follow that what, we're, what we have is a kind of a complete obliteration of personal identity. You know, it seems to me, now I, I, I think that lots of our leftist friends would say, oh, you're taking it too far. We never <laughs> intended to say something like that. But what you're actually, what, what, but, what, but what, that, what I think actually in, a, in fact occurs and this is something that, that occurred to me while I was actually at Harvard Divinity School. I had this sort of, you know how you get one of those, uh, those moments where you just have like uh, the epiphany. And, I, and on the one hand, these, these folks 
these liberty these advocates of libertinism, particularly when it came to sexual matters, yeah, um, <clears throat> seem to be the champions on the surface of freedom. Hmm. But what it, what I what I saw is actually a celebration of petty freedom. In other words, the kind of freedom that you could exercise within a within a uh, a prison cell, as Doug Wilson says, hmm. not you know an, an actual exercise of freedom in the real world, the political realm, or in the economic realm. <clears throat> what what you have in sort of classical understandings, both in the Bible, in Rome and Greece, is an understanding that property uh, makes it possible for us to to enjoy a kind of um, agency in the world that we wouldn't have without it. And, and I think, before you go on, and I think charity is, has to be predicated on that. You can't right. be charitable with someone else's stuff. Yeah, or, and you can't, you can't claim that. <laughs> and I think that's the whole fraud of right. the left. They're charitable with other people's stuff. 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 Other people's right. stuff. Yeah. You know, it, this <laughs> comes back to something we've talked about before, the difference between liberty and license. You know, liberty is the concept of freedom for something positive, freedom properly used, whereas license is simply freedom from any kind of restraint. Liberty always operates within restraints. License operates outside of those. And no one argued that there was a natural human right to license. There was only a natural human right to liberty, to operating within the constraints set by the laws of God and nature. Right. Um, the problem is that once you eliminate the idea of virtue in culture, the idea of liberty inevitably dies because liberty depends on virtue. And without virtue, you cannot have liberty. If you don't have a concept of, of virtue anymore, then all that you're left with for freedom is license. And, and that's utterly destructive. Yeah, and this is the trade-off that the, that the libertine left wants us to sort of celebrate. So you lose liberty... You lose property, you lose agency, you lose uh, a range of things that actually expand your, your ability to make a difference in the world. And instead, you, you turn inward in a kind of, well, sort of immersion in pleasure, which is, doesn't even have fruitfulness to, to, to justify it. You know, everything is, you know, uh, sort of... Uh, the, fruit, the fruitfulness is prevented through prophylactics and, you know, uh, abortifacts abortifac and that kind yeah. of thing. So uh, it's just simply an a turning in on oneself and a, and a sort of immersion in pleasure for its own sake. You know, and it has no sort of larger social significance mm -hmm. economically or politically or anything else. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why... C.S. Lewis criticized Orwell's take in 1984 on sexual repression. I don't know if you remember his, uh, his essay reflecting on Orwell, but in that he criticized Orwell at this point because in Orwell's 1984, sexual license is something that is uh, uh, suppressed uh, in, uh, you know, the, you know, the you know, big brother's brave, you know, or sort of society. Um, and, and, uh, what Lewis uh, brings, brings out is the fact that this is a kind of uh, lark or kind of uh, a, a sort of a misinterpretation of what actually can pot, you know, is more likely to be the case, which is that what we see today. There's a kind of trade-off. Yeah. So there's this, there's this sort, of, sort of infantile or juvenile, that's a better way of putting it, juvenile fascination with sexual experimentation and... and uh, uh, license and sexual pleasure, and people are willing to give up certain things for that. They're willing to give up, you know, political rights. They're willing to give up economic opportunities in order to enjoy that. But in order to have those other things, you need to have virtue. If you're going to if you're going to own property, you must be virtuous enough to actually acquire it and manage it. If you're going to engage in political activity, you need to be virtuous enough to, to command the respect of your fellow citizens and, and be heard and, uh, and uh, recognized as a contributing member of society. Uh, when, when you don't have political and economic liberty, uh, you uh, substitute this other sort of license or this sort of uh, giving yourself over to private and personal pleasures to replace it. So this is the trade-off. Hmm. 
uh, the Libertine Party, which would be the Socialists, would say, leave the driving to us. We'll take care of all of the, uh, <laughs> the, the big concerns. And uh, you just go ahead and just uh, enjoy yourself all you want. You just you know, pump yourself full of drugs. You know, Oregon just passed an, uh, another oh, law yeah. Yeah. just allowing cocaine to be... You know, so, so you can't have plastic straws to actually use the cocaine, but you can have the cocaine. You know, if you can figure out how to get it into your nose, <laughs> but but that's the kind of world we live in. So, yeah. so this this expansive sort of giving oneself over to well, and, and I imagine what you you'll see. I mean, should this continue, um, is, is that that this vice and this totalitarianism are going to increase. So you're going to see a continuance of these kind of things open up those kind of personal self indulgences. Because that is, it guarantees it. You expand things to guarantee it, but then you also have to control it, mm-hmm. and and you've created the perfect mix. And so, so um, uh, yeah, it's self-reinforcing totalitarianism. That's right. Um, another day, we'll have to hit the issue of kind of power and control and, and the, the spiritual significance. Do do a little bit of theological deconstruction on it, if we will, because I really think those two have become the the you know, attraction gods mm-hmm. um, to those. I mean, you notice, look look at the tech. You know, tech starts out good. Facebook, connect with friends, you know, build community. The next thing you know, they want to control you, your friends, and your com- community. Christians have always been trying to say this, that this idol of getting too much power and too much control goes exactly in that direction. Um, and... And uh, it, it's surprising because the left used to be the group of people that were always questioning right. everyone else who had it. Now they they are obsessed with a lust for it that is uh, almost oh, uh, unimaginable. They've, they've always had it. Yeah, you're but they, right. they, it, yeah. it's it's always been central to their entire program. Mm-hmm. But well, it, it's just like the idea of cultural relativism. Yeah, you know, with cultural relativism, you argue yeah. for cultural relativism while Christianity is the dominant. Um, de facto sort of morality within the society. I won't say it's a, a, a society actually had a Christian worldview, but it was dominated yeah. by Christian ideas in moral, the moral realm. So you argue for cultural relativity until the point when your side starts winning. <laughs> and as soon as your side starts winning, you drop that mm-hmm. and you start pushing your morality on everybody else. Mm-hmm. Well, in the same way, yeah. You, you're anti-power and all of that sort of thing until you get it. And once you get it, you drop the pretense and you, you, yeah. you push it. That's where it's like, you know, I always <laughs> tell my students, you know, a lot of us watched Scooby-Doo growing up, right? And so the monster always had to be demasked at the end. And right. this is a classic case. You take the mask off of the, the lefty that's against power, and what do you see? Power, power crazy. crazy guy. Yeah. yeah. What? Um, another observation, going back to what Chris was saying, you know, the, you you get people who will argue that the pursuit of happiness is the same as the pursuit of pleasure. Right. Right. And we have an unalienable right to that, don't we? Right. Well, no. Uh, Jefferson was referring there actually back to Aristotle's Nicomachean right. Ethics, right. where the word that he translated and was common translation at the time for happiness is eudaimonia which Aristotle said was the natural end of man that is what the purpose of human life was was to achieve eudaimonia it does not mean happiness in the modern sense of the word and that's right and Augustine I think would have been one of the chief um, in the Christian world that took that notion of eudaimonia and brought it to I mean this is where you get the notion of beatific vision Right. Um, in, in Christianity, it's, it's, it's a comprehensive fullness. It is not about gratification in the short term. Now, the, uh, we're, we're getting to the point where we should start drawing this in and wrapping things up. And I'd like to, to conclude on this note. Um, one of the things that obviously we have been talking about for some time is resistance. And um, you just wrote a book about that. <laughs> and one of the one of the things that I think is in the back of the minds of many people is is you know how does resistance get resistance uh, um, how is it expressed how is how is it how do how do you go about it but also uh, what are the resources that you have in order to draw on to actually resist and 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 how far do you go you know at what point do you say 
you know, I'm actually going to f- not just simply endure. I'm going to uh, not just simply speak out. I'm actually going to fight back. I think one of the things that one of one of the things that you have to keep in mind is that property provides you with a basis for resistance, for fighting or pushing back. And when it's called into question, uh, when it's threatened, you have, I think, a right to de- to defend yourself. That actually is a, uh, a you know, would uh, justify physical resistance at that point. This is, it's not because what we what we've just talked when we what we've just described when we've talked about property is is yourself. Phys- you know, when, when we have physical property that we own, it's an extension in some sense of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, those things obviously can be taken away, but what happens when those things are taken away is that there really is a sense in which we've been violated, think something has been stolen from us, mm-hmm. and we have, a, we have a right to resist. Um, now, I don't have any uh, thoughts on just how to know when that we've reached a point where, where that can be done or justified. Uh, and then there are all sorts of practical matters that have to be taken into consideration, like how would you actually go about winning and things like that, hmm. or even have a hope of winning. Or maybe, maybe, maybe that's not even a part of the conversation, but, but I think that at least is a legitimate question to raise when you think about this. Do you guys have any thoughts on, the, on those, those matters? I get people asking me this question a lot because I just wrote a book. <laughs> right. And I really don't have a good answer to it. Right. You know, the, the, the fundamental issue, I think, is that we have a... You know, it's interesting, your, your, your description of, of property as being an extension of yourself. That was actually Locke's fundamental argument for why we have property. Mm-hmm. It is an extension of ourselves. You know, when you work for something, you put some of yourself into it, and therefore you have a right to ownership of it because we have a right to ownership of ourselves. The, the problem that we're facing is that on pretty much every level right now, we're seeing an effort to erode that, mm-hmm. if not explicitly, then implicitly. Um, we're being told increasingly what we can and cannot communicate, what we can and cannot believe, Um, The shutdowns that they're now threatening to extend are destroying small businesses across the country. And when you're dealing, you you know, once once you have that out of the way, you know, I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theory minded person, but, you know, you can look at this and say the attack on business ownership and things like that is effectively trying to clear the deck for the kind of thing that, that they're talking about with the Great Reset. Right. Oh. And, it, yeah. it, again, it's utterly destructive. They called it liberty side. Right. Uh, it, right. it, it is utterly destructive well, of liberty. And what you get going on here, contra what Romans is emphasizing, submission to godly orders to punish evil and reward the good, is actually theft on behalf of those in power. Right. So it is the violation of a commandment and a violation of something that, that isn't territory for which they're ordained to legally say. So at that point, what you have is, is, is radical injustice and, and anti-law, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And at that point, that becomes a question. Um, what do you do with anti-law in, in, in a sense? I mean, it's similar to the question Christians had with do you, do you worship the emperor? Right. Well, absolutely not. You know, and that's where we're willing to take risks. Um, and and then the other end is that you know you you for the first time had I think you know maybe not the first time but at least in in, in close to us you had the fact that people are participants in the governing order of God right. with with their their property mm-hmm. um, and and this was a good. I mean, these are blessings. This is a good. They have a certain governance over or this in right. particular. So it's a violation of that good governance of God for someone to come in right. illegitimately and take those things. So these are questions that I don't think a lot of people have looked at or answered with different views, just, you know, the different theories that are out there. Um, yeah, I, I, think that, I think that, and I'd like to wrap up with this because we're, we're getting a little long here. Um, one of the more discouraging things is that uh, our evangelical 
sort of cool table leaders uh, have done zero to help us with any of this. I've never heard any of them even broach these subjects. And consequently, there are a lot of folks out there who are looking for answers, looking for guidance, looking for resources, and they're not getting them from the, from the, from the places they would like to get them from. Yeah. Uh, there's a kind of buy or sellout, I yeah. think, uh, by yeah. many evangelical institutions, you know, whether we're talking about colleges, seminaries, what have you, publishing houses. They're just not willing to go there. Uh, our friends at Canon are one of the few places that forthrightly is addressing this kind of stuff. And for that, Canon is a pariah in the world of publishing. Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, you know, with those things in mind, I think that we need to uh, do a lot of hard thinking, hard questioning, and I think we need to see a new generation of leaders arise who are going to be ready to, mm -hmm. to you know, address the situation that we find ourselves in. And, and hopefully we can be helpful in all of that. But but this is going to go on for a long time. Let me, let me just give you a, a couple of final thoughts. You know, my book, uh, my books on the household uh, presume a right to property and also fecundity within a household, meaning children, being able to prepare children. Can you imagine, what, 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 what can we say for households if the right to property is abrogated and you have to go to your local you know, health care provider in order to get permission to have a child. Hmm. That's the kind of world I think that we're looking to uh, see uh, come about, or that's that's, that's, the, that's the kind of world that I think we're likely to have. Anyway, we're wrapping up here and we're just getting our bill from the, from the <laughs> restaurant just at the same moment. But uh, in order to wrap this up, why don't we just say goodbye? I don't know if you guys have anything you want to say as we wrap up, but anything, Glenn, and his final thoughts? I'm sort of tempted to say buy my book, but I think you I'll should. just leave it at <laughs> buy now. <laughs> I, I'll end with saying buy Glenn's book. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And I'll say that as well. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. It's been good to have you with us. And even though the subject of today's show is perhaps discouraging, overwhelming, what have you, uh, nevertheless, it's better to be uh, open-eyed about the situation that we find ourselves in than to kind of live in a sort of la-la land and be caught by surprise. All right, well, bye-bye.